welcome to the Intuitive Insights podcast series. I'm Nina Lockwood, founder and director of Intuitive Interim and Executive Search. Throughout this series, I will be sharing engaging conversations with talented leaders from across the UK transport sector. I'm delighted to welcome Simon Pearson, Chief Commercial Officer for First Bus, to this episode of the Intuitive Insights podcast. Simon shares his career story from rail into bus and gives us some positive news in terms of the change and transformation that's taking place in the bus industry at the moment. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Simon Pearson, good morning, Chief Commercial Officer for First Bus. It's an absolute joy and a pleasure to welcome you onto the podcast. You've been teasing me for a bit, saying, are we going to do it or are we not going to do it? And here you are this morning. I'm absolutely delighted to see you. Welcome. Thanks, Nina. Really, uh, really pleased to be here eventually. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so in the good old intuitive insights fashion, I'm going to ask you to share your career story with us, Simon, and what we know from the 40 odd episodes of this podcast that we've now done is that this is the bit where people get their inspiration from in terms of where people's careers have started and the current role that they're doing and everything in between in terms of, okay, that's what a career in the UK transport industry can look like. Um, I've never worked in an industry where people have got so much passion for what they do. And having had a few conversations with yourself now, I know that you share that passion too. So I'm looking forward to hearing your story i'm going to hand over to you and ask you to take us back right to the very beginning in terms of leaving education and making a decision in terms of what your career was going to look like where you've been what you've done and tell us something about the job that you're doing now okay thanks nina so um i mean i've I've had 24 years in public transport which which frightens me uh most of the time but uh and, and and that 24 years has been equally split between uh intercity rail and first bus if i go right back to the beginning um you know it was an accidental entry into transport i never had a kind of passion for it as a as a child or anything like that i had a you know relatively working class background in carlisle which which is where i grew up um i was always i guess i was always reasonably bright at school um my dad died when i was 16 that was a kind of a big point in my life and I think kind of like A-levels and university following that I I was probably more interested in enjoying myself rather than uh, than being academic so I I probably underachieved at university got a 2-2 and I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do I had a I had a Saturday job in Woolworths selling records when I was um, right through from 16 to 21 and I uh, I applied to go on their management training scheme when I left right. uni, didn't get in, but I did get in at WH Smith. And I got I got two weeks notice to say that I was being um, being sent to Bradford. Oh uh, my goodness. My, right. uh, my first entry into the world of work was WH Smith Bradford. And then it got moved around a couple of couple of branches in uh, in Yorkshire and I ended up in Pontefract. Um, oh. and I was there for two years. And I I think one of the and I guess that's relevant because I used to commute from a place called Farsley in between Bradford and Leeds to Pontefract, and I needed to get two buses and a train every day there and back. Right. And it was it wasn't the great greatest commute. And I, mm-hmm. I used to think in my head, God, this could be a lot better. You know, it was freezing. The train was either absolutely packed or absolutely empty, and I it didn't didn't quite work for me. It wasn't flowing. And, and one day, and I think this is probably the back end of 1998 when I'd been there for about two years, I. Uh, 
I saw an advert back in the days when jobs were advertised in the Yorkshire Post. It was a it was an advert for a yield manager at GNER. Oh, I didn't okay. know what a yield manager was, but it said they wanted somebody with a mathematical background who could uh, who could forecast demand, and I did a degree in maths. Right. Um, and I thought it looked quite interesting, so I applied and I got that job. Um, and I started in York in in February 1999. Right. My my job really was. Um, it was before any kind of automated revenue management systems came in place. But my, my job was to forecast demand on trains and work out where to put the cheap tickets. And right, okay. I'm basically doing it in Excel spreadsheets and uh, old green screen reservation systems. But it was uh, it was good. And I, you know, I, I entered GNER. I didn't really know much about GNER, but it was it was owned by sea containers. They ran the Orient Express and other luxury kind of um transport operations across the world yeah. and it was very very much about kind of you know the customer experience and it was a really good grounding for me in kind of you know what what you can do for customers and I think GNER he was led by Christopher Garnett at the time who was the chief executive and you know he was really inspirational and right from the off the the role really kind of got to understand what what it meant for customers and what your how your role impacted customers Right. Um, so my my entry was going out and you know spending time at stations and, and going on trains before I started doing anything around forecasting demands. And I guess there's a couple of really key learning experiences in that in those first few months that that have stuck with me for a long time. Um, I guess the first thing was like even in my first few weeks, I got I got sent to King's Cross and just to experience what really busy trains felt like. Because my job was to kind of make sure that train didn't get overcrowded and we kind of spread yeah. the demand out as well as as well as making sure that we kind of like, you know, earned a bit more money from tickets who were, from people who were prepared to pay a bit more as well. Yeah. Um, so just standing on those platforms and experiencing what a train with 700 people on felt like, it yeah. kind of really kind of resonated that actually if you, get, if you get it yeah. wrong, it, it, it has a, an impact on people. Yeah. Um, so that, that, that kind of stuck with me. And mm. then... I, I guess probably in about April, May 19, it must have been April, and I'd been there for a few weeks and I was getting into it. Um, and we used to adjust the, the prices. And I, Newcastle United had made it through to the quarterfinal of the FA Cup. And if they, if they won the game, they would then be going to Wembley for the first time in ages for them. Right. So I thought I was being smart and I went into the office on a Saturday before this match had finished and I um, about five minutes before the game finished um, knowing that Newcastle were going to win yeah. I knocked all the cheap tickets off right. and increased all the fares on the on the trains because I knew that the trains would be really really busy and I thought I was yeah. doing the right thing um, but then sort of like a few days later I think the headline on the front page of the paper was uh, rail company rips off Newcastle fans or something like that because all Ooh. of the tickets had gone so I kind of on one level I was I was doing my job but I hadn't learned the lesson that you know kind of there's an expectation in public transport that it's, a, it's kind of a public service it's, it's private companies yeah. running a public service to an extent yeah. and there's a there's an expectation that you do things for the community and yes. it's not just it's not always just about kind of the the micro decision it's a it's a it's a wider piece around kind of you know what yeah 
you know what, what, what matters to the, the the communities and society that you serve. So yeah, I got a that's, real that's lesson a there. sanitary lesson that one, wasn't it? Yeah, we ended up putting on more trains, and we and we we offered cheap tickets on those ones. So yeah. that was that was a that was a real lesson. Um, yeah. And, I and think... how did that, so? I I never met Chris Garnett, but he, I know of him by reputation. And you know, people often refer back to his leadership style in in a very similar way to Chris Green, where they they both kind of got how important the customer experience was way ahead of the curve in terms of you know the 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 leadership style that they had how people centric that was not just in terms of the customer but also in terms of the the team that worked for them as well on the service what was chris's reaction i mean did he i'm assuming he got to know about <laughs> about your lesson but I, did he react in any way so do you know what i, I don't know because i was i was right. in, in the grand scheme of things i was a minion at that point okay uh, I, was, I was many many layers away um, yeah, Christopher Garnett. He, he no doubt did, but he he certainly never kind of um, said anything to me about. I it. mean, that's a really good um, thing, isn't it? It can't have been that bad because I'm sure you would have known about it. Yeah, and it was, you know, it was. No, it, it, it's it's something I've it's something I've taken with me. But he was, um, yeah. I mean, GNR, it was it was always about doing the right thing, and yeah. you know, we particularly when things went wrong, we just used to kind of put customers in hotels and. Uh, Right. get them to where they needed to be and I, th I think at one point we were at or close to the bottom of the kind of like operational performance for, for stats but we were at the top of the customer satisfaction one which is uh, right okay really that is some doing isn't it yeah, yeah. And, it, um, yeah. and that was a time you know that was that was in the, the early early stages of rail privatization and gnr had got in there early and it was yeah it was it was making a lot of money and it could afford to do it but it, it was it was very much about the the customer experience you know this, this back in the days when you had kind of still had you know the, the kind of like restaurants in first class and uh, it, was a, yeah. it was a really good good product yeah so a good grounding so, um, in, good in terms grounding. of learning steep learning curves early doors yeah and i think you know early doors in my career at gnr we had we I, I was there when we had the the two rail crashes the first one at hatfield at the mm. in kind of i think it was october 2000 and then the Selby rail crash, which was only a few months afterwards. Yeah. And I think at that point, you know, that's when the, the business really kind of like pulled together and you know, it was really, really visible at that point when, you know, you were, you were doing, doing well for, for customers and, mm. you know, everything was geared around doing the, doing the right thing again. Yeah. Yeah. But and I, rebuilding I remember, after, I remember after Hatfield, because my job was about, you know, stimulating demand and, you know, we had, we had lots of busy trains. We also had lots of empty trains as well. Mm. And after Hatfield, I don't know if you you remember, but there was um, there was months where there were speed restrictions across the whole rail yeah. network, and yeah. and passenger numbers just declined enormously because um, journey times were were so long. But we mm. we had a promotion when we came back to full speed where we offered um, five pound fares, and it was only for a week, I think. But we we managed to fill every single seat on every single one of our trains at a fiver. And that, that really kind of taught me that there was this real kind of like underlying demand for rail travel. I mean, we had some really good destinations on the East coast, you know, like kind of, uh, York, Edinburgh, Newcastle, yeah. places, places people wanted to go, but, but it taught me that you could kind of turn the demand on a bit. Mm. And I think we got, we got lots of feedback from customers during that 
during that time when we offered tickets for a fiver that you know from people who'd never been to london before or or never oh, really right, okay. traveled traveled out so we kind of opened up the railway to to a group of people who'd maybe never never used it before and i think that's yeah. that that kind of stuck with me as well that you know kind of you can you can really make a difference to, to people's lives sometimes without really uh, without really realizing it yeah but i think absolutely. that 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 kind of that that evidence that you could get lots of people onto the railway really kind of paved the way for what we were doing with revenue management and mm -hmm. i think after being there a couple of years i i changed roles lots of times all, all within commercial but um i had a i had a role which was bringing in an automated revenue management system this was basically okay. forecasting forecasting demand at, a, at an individual train level and adjusting the ticket prices and what right. that told us is that we, we we should really be offering kind of more more tickets at a cheaper rate, and uh, and we did that, and we mm -hmm. we sold lots of tickets. There was a bit of a kind of uh, you know had to had to take a bit of a brave jump, I guess, in terms of doing that because we was mm -hmm. there was a bit of a tendency to not not go too cheap, but we managed to you know we managed to continue that kind of like that that growth curve and get and get lots of people traveling on the traveling on the trains. We we really kind of simplified the whole range of advanced products um we opened up first class a lot more i think kind of 20 years ago you had to either be buying a really full price uh first class ticket or you had to stay away on a saturday night so we so we did lots of lots of work to kind of simplify the the fares i know we yeah. obviously didn't get to utopia from fair simplification but we uh we we did a lot there and, and generated a generated a lot of demand and we you know, we eventually kind of got to that sweet spot where you knew we could, you could, you could turn it on, and we would, you know, we would, um, you know, we had a database of customers. We could email them, we right. could discount the fares, we could switch it back off again on a Sunday, and we could, you know, we could just generate kind of yeah. million quid over the weekend uh, when we needed to with that with that technology. It sounds like kind of so quite <laughs> early on with that technology. So being involved, it, that that feels like at that point that was quite cutting edge. This automated revenue management system, and also, and you know, we hear a lot now about the importance of data and how we we don't have enough data or the data we have we're not doing anything with but you've just shared a brilliant example from 20 odd years ago of using that customer data that was available emailing them about the fares and so on um so it's so quite kind of ahead of its time in terms of that that customer contact I'm trying to think when um it must have been kind of i guess between maybe 25 26 years ago when tesco did the loyalty card do you remember it, it was kind of oh, the yeah. first of its yeah. kind and, and we all think, oh, this is brilliant because you're going to get some money off your shopping without actually realising that they're gathering all your personal data at the same time to, to make sure that commercially they were going to be doing things that, that served them as well as served us as a customer. So that, that work that you were doing then um, with that kind of the automation and the use of the data is quite cutting edge, wasn't it? I think it was certainly cutting edge in the rail industry. It was, it was way short of... Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it, it allowed us to, you know, kind of like mitigate risks by offering things only to certain certain groups of customers. Yeah. And I, you know, after I'd spent a bit of time in in kind of revenue management and pricing, um, and kind of experienced those early years of GNER, the franchise, as the original franchise came to an end, and GNER then then won a new franchise where it went through a through a kind of like rail bidding round. And I think, I think it was awarded a, the, the, the second of its franchises in 2005, but it was a very, very different business model 
um, right. because it couldn't, it could no longer afford to have that, um, you know, complete freedom with yes. with what it was doing for customers. And it was much more yeah. about efficiency because, you know, you demonstrated that you'd got the growth and, you know, there's a lot more evidence around what we could, mm, what we could get from the franchise. So yeah. as part of that franchise bid, and I wasn't involved in the bid, but there was a, there was a whole piece in there around the retailing strategy. Um, right. And I guess that was the early conversations around kind of reducing, um, reducing kind of um, headcount in, in travel centres, um, moving people towards fast ticket machines, moving people towards the internet and addressing kind of some of the, the third party costs of travel agents and so on. So I got, mm. I got, I got landed with this enormous project to right. completely change the, the distribution and, and retailing model in the business. Right. Fascinating. Well, one of the things we yeah. did there was we we designed our own website and we were the first train operator to move away from from using the trainline.com right um, back then everybody was using the, the train line and you know we we kind of went off on our own and we had to build a really really good um website and we mm. we did that and it was still in use and i think it's still seven bits of it still are in use today and this was um this was 14 or 15 years ago but we yeah. We had to make it really simple for customers to find the right fare for them, and we offered, you know, discounted pricing if you came through um, GNR.co.uk. And one of the reasons for that was, was what you just said, Nina, which was to make sure that we kind of kept the relationship with the customer. We had them in our database to uh, to send those send those emails and uh, and yeah. get those sales up. So that yeah. was a that was a really kind of challenging period. It was, it was it was. Kind of first first interaction mm. with trade unions um and you know there's quite a lot of hurdles we had to jump through at an industry level to uh, to change the commission rates for the travel agents and, and third yes. party operators and so on as well but we succeeded and um you know over that time we we saw a dramatic shift from kind of um travel shops into the internet into and, and away from telephone call centers into the internet as well and, yeah. and onto plastic machines so that was that was good, and then, but I think I think kind of sea containers had sort of like wider issues. It had a kind of managed exit out of the franchise early, mm. um, towards I think that was during two thousand and six, and then National Express took over in two thousand and seven. Yeah. So I had a slightly different role with them. I had a I had a role briefly in a kind of a wider role in National Express, but, but mainly focused on on East Coast. Um, and then in two thousand and eight, the kind of financial crisis struck and you know that the whole franchise bid was, was based on kind of you know delivering strong year-on-year growth and the numbers just collapsed overnight right. um at the back end of 2008 and that that then led to kind of national express kind of exiting that right. franchise and we went into the the, the operator of last resort right. as a, a east coast and that was yeah. um, that was headed up by kind of elaine holt um at the time and we had a kind of good couple of years trying to get back onto a kind of a, a customer focused track again um and then you know I've, i guess having done all of those various commercial roles and worked as part of a really good team um through the various iterations i i thought i needed to start doing something else and i i'd known giles fernley um yeah Giles at the time was, I think he was the chairman of Grand Central Railways. And, you know, we'd, we'd been having some dialogue with him around 
retailing in travel shops because we had to we had to be impartial. Um, so we'd we'd had I'd, I'd got to know Giles quite well through that process, and he he left Grand Central and he and he went and took on the job as um, MD of the bus division in First Group, right. and. I think if you'd asked me back then, did I want to work for First Group? I'd have, I'd have probably thought twice about it because it, you know, had a bit of a reputation for not always being customer focused and maybe being a bit kind of like short term focused and a bit ruthless sometimes. Yeah. Um. I think it was the very first issue of Passenger Transport Magazine. There was an interview with Giles, um, and I think Tim O'Toole had come in as a as the new CEO of First Group, and it was it was very much about a a transformation and and a culture change in that business. And I thought, and it, and it, I thought it was interesting. Um, so I sent a speculative CV off into into first boss to see if there's any roles going. Never heard yeah. anything back for months. And then I, I bumped into Giles at King's Cross Station. He was running for a train, and I said, "Oh, by the way, I sent in a speculative CV." And he said, "Oh, leave that with me." And the following day, I got a phone call from Dave Alexander, who was the MD of the North of England, and we had a coffee, and that was my entry into the. Uh, into the into, into the bus it, division into the bus world right? yeah um and it was interesting because i never i never really i didn't think i was gonna stay in bus for a long time i wanted to do something a bit different okay. i was looking at maybe a commuter talk or something like that but i never i never really anticipated staying in bus for more than a couple of years right to be honest um and loads of people in rail said to me what are you doing going to work in buses and i think there's a there's a bit of a i think there's a little bit of a snobbery thing um mm -hmm. between rail and bus sometimes um mm -hmm. maybe not so much now um but certainly there's there's a lot of people saying you know it's really hard it's really tough um people are only paying a pound it's very different it was a very different it's model very to different. rail where it was all yeah. business travel and and leisure travel and a very low commuter base yeah. but you know i, I kind of got warned off but i think right from the off i found i found bus really really interesting and I, yeah. I started off in a in a role as commercial director for the north of england working for dave and, and working with a bunch of a bunch of really good people there yeah and i think you're right simon Do you know in, in terms of this snobbery so i've been around in the transport sector for just coming up to 11 years and i would say well kind of two things here in terms of first group um and reputationally then yes i'm with you on that 11 years ago if that, when I was starting to get to know the industry, I would say to people, who would you like to work for and who would you actually not want to work for? Um, and first group were falling into that latter category quite often because of everything that you said in terms of reputation. But we have definitely seen that transformation over time. Um, so the work that was being done at that point, I think, has, has paid dividends. Um, definitely the snobbery around the, the rail and the bus bit. But again, I completely agree with you. I think that's starting to change and has been for the last two or three years. And maybe the catalyst for that was the, the fact that going through the global pandemic and the rail industry all of a sudden getting a bit, it's, it's, it's hard. We've got to win people back onto the railway. We've got to win new passengers onto the railway, not just win back the people we had before. And so those commercial skills that you've always needed on the bus side of transport became even more important in rail. So I think the skills transfer between both parts actually started to kind of 
up the interest level quite significantly. That would be my view anyway. So I, I think, yes, there was the snobbery, but we're seeing less of that now, much less. Yeah. And much yeah. more interest and, and fascination in terms of, so how does the bus industry work then? Uh, because you've always had to be so much more commercial. Yeah, that's right. And it's 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 way more agile, and you know you can you can you can you can plan something, have an idea, and it can be implemented within kind of three months, um, which is a much much shorter timescale than than anything that was ever ever possible in uh, in rail. Oh God! <laughs> <And> I, <laughs> oh, for timescales that quick pace. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I and I think the you know the the thing that 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 becomes that became really obvious in bus is you know they, they really matter to people um you know way more people use the bus than use any other form of public transport in the uk um particularly in the areas out, you know outside of london where we where we operate you know we've got we've got about you know, heading towards one and a half million million um kind of trips a day mm. um just in first bus so it's, yeah. this is a huge number of people um traveling and when we get it right it really kind of improves the day and when we get it wrong um it can have a big impact and it's not just about you know if you and i are late for work we can probably get away with it because we're, we're both sat in our home offices at the moment but if you're uh, if you're working in a shift or if you're working in a hospital or something you've got to turn up um day in day out so it's really really important that we really that we run a reliable service that that, that people can trust yeah. um that's not always easy um Back is very rarely easy, but it's um, it's you know it it makes a difference and it makes a difference to to, to, to the to the communities that we that, that we serve. Yeah. People using the bus for all sorts of things. When when I when I went in, I I kind of fully expected that the majority of people on the bus were going to and from work, but that's not that's not the case. It's a you know we've got lots and lots of young people in education. We've got a lot of older people using the bus, and we've got a lot of people using the bus to, to go to town, see the friends, go shopping. It's not, yeah. it's not just a, it's not just a commuting thing at all. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really. <clears throat> Sorry, lost my train of thought briefly there, Nina. I'll, That's I'll, all right. I'll it's all in. right. But it's, I, I think there's a there's a there's a real opportunity now um, to to. To change how people perceive buses, um, I'm going off um, my career track here and uh, and start talking about where I am now. But I'll, I'll come back to it. Don't worry. That's um, all right. It's all good, Simon. Don't worry. But I think you've got. I, th I think there's some really positive tailwinds in the industry. I think you know there's a. You know, net zero, regardless of kind of where today's politics are, are changing at a kind of a, on a day to day basis. Um, yeah. Net zero is here. Um, the boss has got to be part of the solution there mm. in terms of in terms of kind of delivering that at a national level. Um, you've got some real advances in technology, which make it far, far easier for people to kind of plan bus journeys and then use the bus. Yeah. So, you know, we can we can track where buses are. We can display them on a map. Customers are now used to seeing what what they you know what they um what they experience with uber and so on on a, on a daily basis yeah. and we've got the you know we can we can replicate that and give people real confidence about where the buses are minimize you know the things people don't like so much like wasting uh waiting at uh waiting at bus stops yeah. um you know put people in control of their journeys and give them yeah. the confidence that they're going to do that yeah 
And I think with you know attitudinal changes, particularly amongst younger people who are more environmentally conscious, we can you know there's there's some real kind of momentum I think to to you know kind of getting people to to change their change their attitudes. And I think yeah. we you know in, in first we're going to be doing a lot of work around the the brand of the bus and 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 I guess the the brand of the the bus industry, not 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 just first bus, you know, yeah. to really kind of try and try and change those perceptions and and make people love the bus again. Yeah. Um, There's a uh, lot of work to be done to there. Do. But the fact that you're you're saying that I love this and the brand of the bus, it's kind of to get people back into. If I, if I think about the bus that I used to go on when I was um, going to um, early doors of go starting work and traveling from Leyland to Preston on the Jimmy Fishwick 111. Um, and I can still smell the bus because those days you were still able to smoke on the bus. Yeah, um, and yeah. I can still kind of feel the ticket. You know, you just get this little yellow ticket when you got on. And it wasn't a fancy way to travel. I didn't have a car. So it was my, I either did that or walked a mile and a half to get to the train station. So I got the bus, it was easier. Um, and also during the winter when everyone had their, their uh, lights on and the curtains on, and I could have a right good nosy from the top deck into everybody's houses, which yeah, was always, yeah. always a benefit for me. But that kind of the, the brand of the bus, you know, people having used it when they were younger, getting getting us back on it again. I think the, the apps have been brilliant for that. When I'm in London, I use the City Mapper app. And the fact that it tells me exactly how to get to the bus stop, so where I need to be, then gives me the real-time information about when the bus is due to arrive. And then once I'm on the bus, it's telling me which stop is next. So I know one of my things around kind of lack of confidence of travelling is how do I know when I've got to stand up to get off? Yeah. And all of the app is just brilliant at that. I love it. I absolutely love it. And it's given me the confidence to get on the bus in London, which I have never done before. So the last couple of years, that's how I've been travelling around rather than on the underground and again it's much more interesting than being underground anyway yeah yeah and i think we're seeing we're seeing more and more people do that and yeah. you know you, you talked earlier when we were talking about rail about the importance of data and i guess one of the things that's happened in the bus industry over the last five or so years is you know our customers have gone from being largely anonymous people who who throw a coin in a box and get on the bus yeah. to people who are paying with mobile phones via the app or paying with a contactless card either just to get a ticket or through some sort of kind of like tap and cap program yeah the majority of our customers now we can we can see kind of how frequently they're traveling and so on and i think what one thing we we are seeing is that you know we've got way more individuals than we than we maybe previously thought who are traveling and that that means there's a there's an opportunity to get people to make a few more trips yes. it's not about getting people to kind of like sell their bmw um mm -hmm. that would be nice um but you know the, the opportunity is getting people to make smart choices about certain journeys and getting them to use the bus where that's the that's the sensible thing to do yeah absolutely and, you know I, I think what you just said there in terms of you know you use city map you can do it with, with google maps or our app you can mm -hmm. you could just see see what you need to do and you can make that choice there and then yeah go yeah. and do it and if you, so if easy you to need use. to do is tap your phone and sit down um yeah. that makes it even even easier and all of these kind of like the, the barriers that have existed for many years are you know that there's the potential there for, for them to disappear yeah and, um, and as, as you've said that word confidence is really important and i can hear in your voice you know we started kind of talking about the 
at, right at the beginning of this conversation around the passion for the industry that, that people have. And you can clearly hear that in your voice in terms of the passion you've got for building this this brand of the bus and getting people to, to use that as a different way of travelling to, to how they might be doing it. So there's been commercial, the word commercial has gone all the way through your career to that kind of commercial director role when you came into First Bus up to chief commercial officer role now. So what does what does that mean in the in a kind of week in the life of Simon Pearson? What does that chief commercial officer title mean that you do? What's what's the job? Um, I've probably got three or four. I've probably got three main bits of my job. I would say. So I sit I sit on the exec team within First Bus. So you know, a big part of my role is just you know kind of working with my colleagues about the the strategy of the business. So. The bus MD now is Jeanette Bell. She took over from Giles a um, couple of years ago. I think probably even a little bit longer than that. Right. Um, and she's, you know, she, she is really, really good leader. She's came from P&L Ferries um, before they had their kind of much publicised kind of uh, union issues. But she's yep. she's got customer and people running through her veins, and that mm. is going right through the organisation. Um, got a guy called. Kevin Green, he's our chief people officer, and he's mm. you know he's he's had a senior varied career in uh, in HR, um, but he was he was previously a kind of um, HR director in Royal Mail, yeah. so he's he's really driving a kind of like a, a people focus through the business. Isabel joined us as a chief um, sustainability officer. She's driving our decarbonisation agenda. So I guess there's some there's some new blood in the in the in the exec team. Yeah. And then you've got me, Andrew and Colin, who are my my kind of other colleagues who are probably kind of more experienced transport professionals. I've oh, got yeah. a guy called Gary who's looking at the Gary Hitchmo, he's looking at the uh the, the growth agenda. So I've got really good balance on there yeah. in terms of, yeah. kind of how we how we're running the, the the business. And so I spend a lot I spend a lot of time with them. So I had yeah. a couple of days away with um with that group last week looking at kind of you know how we what we're prioritizing for the next year and how we're functioning as a, as a team. Um, and that was a, that was a good couple of days away in Cheshire. Yeah. Um, I guess tomorrow I've got a day with the commercial directors from our kind of local business units. So they report into the, into the MDs, but there's, there's five or six of those and, and we're working on our kind of commercial priorities for next year. And right. particularly how we make sure that kind of what we're doing at a strategic level um, from the group and from the the, the centre in Bors is, is is kind of filtering through to the uh, to the kind of the, the operations on the ground. So that that's primarily yeah. about us making sure that we've got our got our priorities um, right and we've got the the resources in the right places to deliver everything. Yeah. Um, we've got a couple of couple of programs ongoing at the moment. We've we've talked about the brand work. Um, that that's work in development, and we're. Uh, we're spending a lot of time focusing on that, and we're going to be launching that early next year, I would Brilliant. say. Um, Watch this space. And we've done, and we're doing a lot of work around customer experience at the moment as well. We've just completed a um, piece of work with some external specialists, and we've we, we've um, researched thirteen thousand of our customers and, and looking at kind of you know what is it that's really important to them and. Right. How, where are we performing well and where are we not? 
and we're looking for the gaps for you know what are the things that we really need to focus on where we're not delivering so well but it's something that's really really important to our customers yeah yeah and and you know one of the things there is making sure that you know the, the importance of this this data what you just described making sure mm-hmm. it's accurate day in day out so that they can they can trace it yeah. um and that's that's a key thing there yeah sorry and then i've got my own team so i've got i've got a kind of central team in first with kind of 20 odd people in it as well um right. and you know we're looking at pricing we're looking at how we better deliver networks uh, we're looking at things like how we forecast journey times and you know that's a that's a really kind of interesting development with technology yeah. as well because we're we're getting a, a signal every 10 seconds from our bosses so we know exactly where they all are so okay. we can we can uh, we can work out I guess the variability in journey running time and that is the you know the big the big pain point in the bus industry I think is is congestion on the roads and yeah. You know, we get a lot of stick as operators for running late or um, buses bunching or wherever yeah. else it might be. But the the root cause of the vast majority of that is congestion and variable running times. And you know, if you drive around anywhere, you'll know that at certain times a day or certain days a week. One day it might take you ten minutes, or one day it might take you twenty. And exactly. And so I the think challenge that... is how do you how do you timetable a bus to run accurately there? Yeah. Um, if you put too much time in you know you you cheese off all the customers because they're sat waiting at bus stops yeah enough and the bus is always late so the yeah. technology is really trying to kind of forecast that variability and create timetables which will um which are which are much much more deliverable right i wouldn't have a clue where to start there which is a good job that there are very clever people who do know how to start yeah. i i feel and it might all be relative because of the pandemic when there was no very very little traffic on the roads it feels to me now that there is a lot more traffic on the roads than we had pre-pandemic. But I, as I say, it might just be relative. But I was going into Manchester, it's quite a few months ago now. I, I will, the vast majority of my journeys into Manchester are on the train um, because that's that's my preferred method, not least because the car parking in Manchester is so extortionately expensive. But the other bit is the congestion. It's quicker and easier to go on the train. Um, but I had to drive in this particular day. I'm going in on one of the main roads into Manchester on the A580. And uh, Transport for Greater Manchester have got various um, signs as you go down the road. You know, these kind of um, matrix signs. And yeah. this particular sign, and I can't quote it exactly because I can't remember um, the exact wording of it, was basically, don't be moaning about the traffic. You are the traffic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's kind of like really took me back, as if kind of like yeah, you know, I'm I'm kind of looking around. Like, what are these people doing here? Why are they Why are they all driving into Manchester? Why is all this traffic? And it's like yes, because we are the traffic, and that's these kind of key messages that are quite simple, but but do need um, reiterating over and over again because there are different methods and making it easier for people to choose those different methods and getting people out of the cars and onto a bus. And so saving all of this space on the road network yeah. is key. But that building and, the brand first, I think. Is, most of the people at that particular time were probably kind of singular occupancy cars. Yeah. Um, they're taking up a hell of a lot of road space that could be given yeah. over to buses. Mm. Not everybody there would be able to have a convenient public transport alternative, but a hell of a lot of them would have been. Yeah. 
And if we can get a chunk of those people out and, and onto the bus and at the same time get some sensible long-term decisions around road space from politicians, yeah. that yeah. would be where we, where, where we see a real kind yeah. of like transformation in modal shift. So this is taking, I'm feeling now, I'm, I'm the itch to get my magic wand out to move us into the, the next part of the podcast conversation, which is around your three wishes. So, so much of what you're doing in the day job is working on the business rather than in it. You know, having those strategic conversations about what are we doing that's working? Where are the gaps that we need to fill in terms of our customer expectations and what we're delivering? How do we make this better for the people? who work with us and travel with us. So all of that amazing stuff. If I was to give you three wishes and wave my magic wand and say, Simon, you can change three things in the UK transport industry or in the bus industry specifically, what would those three things be in order to make a big difference okay. to get people yeah. travelling? I focused on the bus industry on this yeah. one, I think. Um, and we've probably touched on all of them so far. Yeah. I, think, I think the first one for me would be for the industry to move on from kind of ideological conversations around ownership and start focusing more on the opportunity to to grow bus customers and work together to do that. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a you know fr franchising isn't isn't a panacea. And there are opportunities for operators and local authorities in lots of different models. Mm. But I guess what's consistent through all of them is that we've got to work together and make some, you know, kind of choices around, you know, where we invest and where we operate services to deliver to deliver good services that will have mm. the biggest impact on modal shift and, you know, kind of improve the, the lives for the, the majority of people. Yeah. And I think the, you know, kind of, Getting out of this argument of them and us is a is a is a key thing that I'd like to Agreed. like to see change. If I had a magic yeah. one, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that, do you know what? That doesn't rely on, um, or shouldn't rely on the political debate, or shouldn't actually rely on um, financial restrictions. This is about people working with people and collaborating for everybody's good because there is actually, there are enough passengers to go around. Um, there are enough people sat in their cars on the A580 going into Manchester to spread out and get people on using different types of transport. Well, so, absolutely, and it, and it doesn't take a, it doesn't take a big shift out of all of the people travelling on cars to have a big impact on no. the public transport sector and a big impact on the, uh, the congestion and the capacity in the road network. Yeah. So wish number one, everybody works closer together, more collaboratively, and um, in terms of achieving that modal shift. You've got yeah. two more, two more, two more wishes left in me wand. The, the second one was to have a kind of a, a longer term approach on investment and funding into the industry. Mm. And I think there's, a, there's long term aspirations, but I guess short term needs often get in the way. And... You know, so, so for example, at the moment, we've got, you know, really good um, funding for £2 bus fares, um, which is driving some growth, but it's not driving growth in all markets. Um, and it's not particularly 
targeted at the people that need it the most. It's good to stimulate um, some some overall growth. Yeah. But what's the long term objective, and how do we exit that, and how do we make sure that the funding um, that is available for the bus industry is is targeted in the right place so that we can make the right decisions now for a better future. Yeah. Yeah, um, so I'd, I'd, I'd like to see that kind of more joined up long term approach. And, and that's that's probably kind of, you know, a, a transport approach rather than just buses. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. And unfortunately, we are relying on the politicians somewhat for that one, aren't we? So yeah. good job. Good job. I've got a magic wand. Yeah. <laughs> Number three. And the third one, I mean, I, I touched on it earlier when I my experiences when I when I moved from rail to bus but I yeah. you know magic wand I would change the change the perception of the bus industry um and I think it's a it's a really great place to work um it does a hell of a lot for society um but it's it's kind of gets bashed a bit too too much um yeah. and, I, and I think you know it's a it, it does it does it does really important things that matter um but it's often on the kind of the it, it, it takes a beating uh, yeah. so often. Um, and I think from a perception perspective, you know, it's a, I found it a more interesting than I, than I did in rail, to be honest. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'd, I'd like to see more people have that have that attitude. And I think, you know, we will we will do that with the, with the work we're doing on brand. But with a magic wand, I'd like that to be happening tomorrow. So that we had a, sooner. Yeah. A, flood of, a flood of people wanting to come and be part of the journey and drive our buses and do all yeah. the roles in the business. Certainly from the experience that we've had working with the bus industry over the last three or four years and doing more of that um, now than we've ever done, then the conversations that that my team are having with prospective candidates, we are definitely seeing that shift in terms of this is an exciting place to be. And I think when you've got a starting point where you can see the amount of potential that there is to be part of change and transformation in an industry and making something better, which actually matters. And that is a common thread that goes through every single person that I've ever spoken to who works in the transport industry. We're here to make things better. And yes, it's about getting people from A to B, but it's not, it's so much more than that in terms of where they start and where they finish their journey. What are they traveling for? It's not about a journey on a bus or a train. It's actually, yes, I'm going to, I'm going on a first date or I'm going to go and visit someone in hospital or I'm going to go and spend an evening with my friends in a, you know, having a meal, going to the theatre, whatever it is, it's we are providing a means to an end and we, we have got that sense of purpose in this industry, which is one of the reasons I love it so much. Yeah, Brilliant absolutely. three wishes. So thank yeah. you. Thank you for those. Um, in terms of inspiration, Simon, um, people get their inspiration and motivation from lots of different places. And we're a nosy old crowd on the Intuitive Insights podcast. And I always love to ask people, is there something that that kind of you go to? If you're having a day where you feel like, do you know what, I need plugging in, I need recharging, I need inspiring, what do you do? How do you how do you get that inspiration? Um I've probably not got something which is an absolute go-to every time. Um I like being with people. I I, I kind of uh, you know yeah. I, I I struggle when I'm kind of uh, sat behind a PC all day. I can't, I can't, I can't do that all day. So I, I, I like, yeah. I like bouncing ideas and uh, and thoughts off my team. Um, in terms of outside of work, though, I guess I probably, you know, I, I listen to 
few podcasts. Um, I try to read a lot. I kind of struggle with that at the moment, actually, but I, right. I, I do try and read a lot. And I've got a little bookshelf in our office at work of uh, books I've read that I think people will uh, will benefit from. But right. I really like I really like to understand kind of what motivates people's behaviour. Mm. Um, my my favourite book's probably one by a guy called Daniel Kahneman, who was a kind of behavioural kind of economist economist um yeah and it was all about kind of the the hidden things that make people kind of do what they do and the trade-offs that they make and the choices that they make some and a lot of that was around you know kind of the whole stuff around nudge theory and everything came out came out of there so i'm yeah. I, I get a bit geeky on that sort of stuff yeah i'm more interested in what makes what makes people tick and uh and you know learn, learning more in that space i guess yeah, really. I don't have a. I, I, you know, I haven't got anything written on my wall that that motivates me or or anything like that. Right. But, um, I tend to do a mix of things. I think your your point is is a really good one. That you know, some days it can be. It for, for me, it'll be like, yeah, I'm just gonna. I've just got to stop. I've got to get away from the screen, and I'm just gonna put get the dogs and go out for a walk. And that's kind of re-energizes me, refocuses me. I get my energy from people. So if I've not been out and about, and it's a very, very rare that this happens, but if I've had two or three days during the week where I'm, I'm in the office, sat at my desk, then I get really kind of twitchy and I'm like, no, I need to be with people. And not just on a screen either. It's a good it's a good kind of second best, but being with people physically and being out and about and, and meeting with clients and candidates is one of my favourite things to do. But I'm also, I mean, you can see loads of books behind me. I've got so many books on different subjects. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's a case of just looking at the shelf, thinking, right, which one is speaking to me? Pull it off, open it up and then read whatever is there and kind of leave it to the lap of the gods in terms of what I've chosen to pick up. Um, yeah. But, yeah, we, we all get we'll get it from different places. But I think people is a common theme, again, in terms of being with other people, being inspired by them helping other people and therefore kind of giving rather than expecting to get back is also an energizing factor for me yeah and you and you, you learn stuff from all sorts of people don't you and we are we, at our management conference six months or so ago maybe a little bit longer we had um jay Humphreys and professor damien hughes who who did a oh, wow. uh, they did a they did an hour with our right. wider leadership team and they're the people who run the the kind of high performance podcast yeah that, i love that one of my favorites right okay yeah and they're they're really down to earth but they they bring out examples from people you wouldn't necessarily expect so they've got industry leaders and sports people and so on there as well but there's yeah. some there's some real great examples from i think she's called vicky patterson, patterson who's oh yes kind of like reality yeah, yeah. tv star and so on yeah, about yeah. How, they, how they kind of like manage their lives and how they uh mm. you know kind of how they I don't know get their own self self-worth sense of purpose and so on so yes all, all of that's really really interesting and i yeah. think in in first i think with kevin in particular we I, we've done we've done a lot of work on purpose and we've we've you know right. got new values which we've which we've kind of like built from the from the ground up and i you know we're, we're sticking with them and I, yeah and I, and I think you know kind of you know living by those and you know being values driven i think is important yeah. to the to the leadership team here yeah it's massive and that's coming out certainly you know kind of working with um with first across the group but but specifically the work that we've we've done with you in bus is that 
you can't swap your values every year. It's not something it's kind of, all oh, right, it's annual business planning time. What, what values shall we have this year? Because that's not how it works, is it? It's kind of intrinsic to who we are as an organisation and we stick to those. And there might be different kind of things that we want to achieve each year, but they keep bringing us back to the values. And that for us, when we're working in terms of talent attraction into any organisation, if the clearer you can be on your values as a business and therefore kind of matching that to whoever you're bringing in is so important, more important than it's ever been. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, and we've got, we've got a couple of people in first now and we're, you know, we're really focusing on that kind of that, that side of the business. We've got a, you know, we've got a diversity and inclusion team now, which, you know, I go back even three or four years ago and think would we have a dedicated diversity and inclusion team in first you know and it's great and we're doing it because it's the right thing to do we're not doing it because we've got a franchise commitment that says we've got to have a team of people doing this stuff yeah it's you know it's important and we've got to we've got to get through to our our employees and our prospective employees that this is a place where you can you can come and you can and you can be you and you can thrive exactly Um, we've got a long way to go don't get me wrong but we're you know we're we're really, really kind of um, investing in that stuff. That's important. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you so much. I've really thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Um, it's really interesting for me to hear about kind of how your career started in the rail industry, the lessons that you took from that that take you into the the bus side. It always, you know, you said right at the beginning it was an accidental en- entry into the transport industry. It wasn't something you started off kind of like what Mark Hopwood told me he was four years of age when he knew that he wanted to work with with the railway you know he stood on the platform and we've got a handful of people like that but we've also got a huge majority who have come into the industry I remember somebody telling me I came in on an eight-week contract and I've been here 27 years and it's like it's an industry that as as public transport as we've said we're providing a service we're providing a really important service to the community and once you're in it I wouldn't want to work anywhere else. I find it absolutely fascinating. But um, one of my uh, one of my colleagues called me a um, a bus person a couple of months ago, and I think I was initially kind of taken <laughs> taken aback by it. But I think uh, I think they meant it as a compliment. I would say so. Yeah. I would say so. I'm really looking forward to watching this kind of building the brand of the bus taking shape um, and kind of watching that journey. Um, we've certainly kind of seen so much energy coming out of the bus industry over the last few months in terms of people really wanting to make that change and transformation happen around the brand. So um, we will continue to be cheerleaders. Our Caroline's got a big red hands that she waves around at every occasion for the uh, yeah. catch the bus month, but she uses them every month. Um, but I really appreciate you giving me the time, Simon, to to share your career story, to talk to us about your three wishes. And um, and it's been really, really interesting for me to hear that, um, your journey so far. Thank you for joining me on the Intuitive yes, Insights podcast. Cheers. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. My huge thanks to Simon Pearson, Chief Commercial Officer for First Bus, for joining me on this episode of the Intuitive Insights podcast. And thank you for joining. I hope you enjoyed it.